What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I have the immense pleasure of sitting down with Ovik Roy, the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. In November of last year, he wrote a piece, Bitcoin and the Looming U.S. Fiscal Disaster. And it was a really good piece. One of the best pieces on Bitcoin and U.S. federal government policy, I believe, that has been written to date. Uh, in the first 13 years of Bitcoin's existence. Uh, happy uh, day after Genesis Block Day, freaks. I don't know if it's the birthday. I'm just going to say Genesis Block Day. Yes, it was officially mined on January 8th, whatever. Like he just stamped it and then the network started on January. Who cares? January 3rd, Genesis Block. Okay. Back to the interview. Incredible interview. We get really into it. I think this is the type of level-headed uh, representative uh, for Bitcoin or somebody advocating for Bitcoin on Capitol Hill, whether you like the fact that people are advocating for or against Bitcoin on Capitol, Capitol Hill, whether you think it's inconsequential, whether you think it's uh, going to only harm Bitcoin in the long run, I think you definitely need to listen to this episode because Ovik gives a very compelling uh, case that, that we should be getting out there and, and educating people about Bitcoin. Bitcoin, if you're an American, aligns very closely to the ideals that this family, this family, we are a big family, this country was was founded on. It, it embodies the ideal of, of freedom and private property rights in a protocol that we like to call Bitcoin. I think you guys are going to like it. Let me know what you think. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash Cash up's here to help you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, and sell sats if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 because sats are the standard. It's 100 million sats and one whole Bitcoin. If you're out there, you're thinking, oh, I need to buy a whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy Bitcoin. You don't even have to buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. You can stack whole sats instead. Cash App makes it very easy. If you haven't downloaded the app yet, make sure you use the code stacking sats. That's S T A C K I N G S A T S. You're going to get $10. And $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Owls lacrosse. This trip was also brought to you by our great friends at Unchained Capital. We're in Unchained Capital's new offices right now. I think I took the first dump at Unchained Capital's new offices. Uh, nobody from the Unchained team has moved in here. I was able to get in here early. Our new studio is going to be here on 6th in Congress at Unchained's new offices, the center of the Bitcoin world in the center of Austin. Unchained Capital, if you guys don't know what they do, they provide incredible services to Bitcoiners, particularly around custody and helping individuals eliminate single points of failure in their custody model. This is embodied in their Vault product, which is a two or three multi-sig where you hold two keys. Unchained holds one. Uh, you always have control of your UTXOs. If you have those two keys, you assign them, you can use your UTXOs at will. If you're ever in a pinch, you only have one of your keys for some reason, Unchained is there uh, to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum. They have a white glove concierge service that's going to take you from zero to having a vault set up with a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats in it. If you tell them the TFTC sent you, you're going to get $50 off that package. And that package includes multiple video calls. Uh, they're going to send you hardware wallets. They're going to get you comfortable with the product, comfortable with multi-sig and get it set up. And again, dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats into that. Unchained is not a faceless company. They're not an app with no support team. They are here to be a partner in your custody and in your uh, your uh, protection of your Bitcoin. They don't only want you as a, uh, a partner. They want 
your children, your grandchildren. They want to help you secure your generational wealth and they're building products around not only the security, but the financial services on top of that. So go check out everything they have at unchained.com. And again, if you do the white glove concierge service, tell them TFTC sent you and you're going to get $50 off. This trip is also brought to you by good friends at Brain. Brains. Brains is the team behind the Brains OS Plus firmware, the auto-tuning firmware that helps you stack more sats with your ASICs. If you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not using it, you are leaving sats on the table. It's as simple as that. Go to Brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com and check out the compatible models and make sure that you have Brains downloaded on yours if you have a compatible model. Again, you're leaving sats on the table if you're not using Brains OS Plus firmware. They're the team behind Slush Pool, which is the oldest mining pool in Bitcoin's history. Uh, and uh, if you use Brains OS Plus firmware and you point your hash at Slush Pool, you're going to get 0% pool fees. Beyond that, they're trying to educate miners and Bitcoiners about the mining industry and they have insights.brains.com, I-N-S, how do you spell this? I-G-H-T-S dot brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com. You go to insights.brains.com, you're going to see mining profitability cal- calculators, not calendars. Uh, you can't predict the profitability of Bitcoin mining unless you're a genius. And if you could, let me know. Uh, you're going to have stats about mining pools, about hash rate, about difficulty, uh, about uh, the cost to mine a Bitcoin. You can plug in your inputs. So go check all this out at brains.com, insights.brains.com if you want to go check out the the calculators and the data specifically. This trip is also brought to you by good friends at HODL, 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 HODL is here to bring you a distributed, non-custodial, no KYC, no AML lending product. You put your Bitcoin up in collateral in a two or three multi-sig. You hold one key, your counterparty in the lending uh, engagement holds the key and HODL, HODL holds the third key. The beauty of this is, so you put your Bitcoin up as collateral, you get stable coins, as liquidity, since you have one key in that two or three multi-sig quorum, you have visibility into the wallet throughout the duration of your loan. So that you know that your sats are not being rehypothecated. And if you pay that loan back, at the end of the day, you're going to get your sats back. Alternatively, if you uh, are somebody who's a stablecoin guy or gal, and you want to get yield on that, you can uh, put that those stablecoins up on the other side of that market. You find Bitcoiners who are looking for stablecoin liquidity, and you give that to them, uh, and then you get your stable coins back plus interest. And if the person doesn't pay back the loan, you get the sats in the collateralized multi-sig setup. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com to check this out. Again, no no KYC, no AML, non-custodial. It's a beautiful thing. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by good friends at the Bitcoin 2022 conference, April 6th to 9th in Miami. It's going to be the biggest Bitcoin event in the world. It's going to be massive speakers there. President Bukele, said he's got an announcement for 2022. He's going to be there in person. Protect him at all costs. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of other Bitcoiners. We have the open source uh, tent where the, a lot of open source developers and software projects are going to be highlighted. They're going to give presentations. Uh, Sailor's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Matt's going to be there. It's going to be a great time. It's April 6th to 9th in Miami in South Beach at the South Beach Convention Center. Uh, there's going to be a music festival on the last day. Uh, it's going to be a beautiful thing. Go check out the Bitcoin conference. I don't, it's b.tc slash conference, I believe is the website. And if that's wrong, I owe, I owe the people at BTC media, but I'm pretty sure that's right. If you go purchase a ticket, you use the code TFTC, you're going to get 10% off. 
TFTC, 10% off Bitcoin 2022. Get the tickets while you can. Uh, they, they have price tiers. As soon as they sell a certain amount of tickets, the price goes up. So the earlier, the better. TFTC, 10% off. Enjoy this episode of TFTC with Ovik Roy. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Oh, Victor, we're finally getting this recording in the books. Uh, we had to reschedule once, and then I'm sorry, you, you've been driving all over Austin before before we sat down here. You I'm trying to figure out how many sats I could have mined driving my car around downtown <laughs> Austin, but I uh, couldn't do the math in my head. Yeah, I was telling over. We've been recording at my house, uh, and that was where the original episode was uh, going to be recorded, but we record outside of my house and it's a bit too cold today. So I snuck in uh, to the offices uh, of Unchained Capital and where our new studio is going to be here in Austin uh, to get in the setup so we can record indoors. But I'm very excited that we're finally doing this. Uh, I'm uh, extremely grateful that you agreed to do this because I think the work that you're doing is very important. Thanks a lot. And thanks to Unchained for, uh, for putting you in this really nice new space. I'm looking forward to all the meetups we're going to do over here. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of meetups for you. Just get ready for it. Um, but let's jump into what you're doing. You're the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. And in preparation for this interview, I mean, I've been reading your mission statement and a bunch of the articles that you guys are putting out. And there's always been, uh, at least I'm 30 growing up. Uh, in my life, uh, whenever a think tank has been mentioned, it's always been uh, with a negative connotation uh, attached to it. But it seems like what you're doing uh, at FreeOp is is attempting to uh, sort of change the connotation around think tanks and bring people across both sides of the aisle together. This is a fair assessment. Well, tell me, uh, I'd just be interested in, in your perspective. What, what's, when you, when you say that there's a negative context of think tanks, what do you, what's your sense of what the reputation of think tanks is? Uh, as a, group? a bunch of academics getting together and trying to uh, craft policy that maybe a lot of the times they uh, aren't best equipped to draft because they don't have the real world experience uh, or uh, they are just hyper partisan uh, and are trying to do things at one edge of uh, the spectrum. Uh, yeah, both of those things are definitely true. And um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it's so interesting because if, if you uh, if you'd asked me 10 years ago that I'd you know, tell and told me that I'd be starting a think tank today, I would have been pretty surprised. But, um, you know, I ha I've had this kind of random career with a lot of zigs and zags. I was a, you know, I was training to be an academic scientist, a molecular biologist, and I went to med school. And then I went into biotech investing and, um, you know, in the hedge fund business, and then, you know, got interested in, in um, sound money and, and Austrian econ and all that during the financial crisis. Um, and certainly had no problems with volatility dealing with the biotech sector. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and at the same time, this is all happening. I, I got interested in public policy. I got recruited to, to help Mitt Romney with his uh, health reform plan in 2012 because my first job out of med school was at Bain Capital, which he had founded. And so, 
uh, full circle, I, all of a sudden I'm working in public policy. And I'd always been interested in public policy, but never had been directly involved in it. And, you know, long story short, I ended up working on a couple of presidential campaigns, one of which brought me to Austin. Uh, and uh, that experience helped me to realize how important think tanks are. Uh, you know, you when you run for president, let's say Marty Bent is running for president, and you've got, you hire one of your buddies to be your policy director to help you come up with your plans for your agenda for running for president, all the things you want to fix, whether it's Bitcoin or anything else. And like, let's say you said to your, your, uh, your staffer, you said, you know, uh, staffer, I want to I wanna fix the problem of student debt. Can you come up with a plan for me for, for fixing student debt? That staffer isn't going to come up with that plan on his own. He's going to call up his favorite three think tanks and find the scholars at those think tanks and say, okay, what plans do you have? And then synthesize from there and come up with something, right? Because you're not going to come up with it yourself because you're worried that if you if, if I if, if I'm your staffer and I go to uh, go to you Marty and say okay here's my plan that I just cooked up overnight and then you go on CNN and have to you know, articulate that and you get shredded in mm -hmm. a debate or by a reporter or something else you're going to look like an idiot right so you uh, you need plans that have been thought through and vetted that are also consistent with your philosophy in order to uh, to come up with a plan to, to do the things you want to do and so what I realized having this front row seat to presidential campaigns is that think tanks were really, really important, but at the same time, what think tanks were providing policymakers, members of Congress, senators, presidential candidates, presidents, was not very good uh, on multiple fronts. One, it wasn't just very good technically, like the actual policy outcomes that you would achieve would not be what the, the think tank experts would promise, to your point about the real world outcomes relative to, to the academic theories. And the other problem is a lot of times people will come up with plans that whether they would work or not, have no chance of getting through Congress because they're politically impossible. And so you kind of have to do both, right? You have to have uh, ideas that would actually achieve the result that, that you're hoping to achieve. And you also have to uh, come up with plans that can get enough public support to, to, to have a chance of becoming law. And that gets us to one of the problems you hear a lot about in America today, which is that we're fundamentally divided. You know, there's the left and the right, and they always they hate each other. And, you know, we have these, this fundamental contest of values, right? Um, and I think our, our, my, my observation and our argument uh, has been the opposite that actually most Americans want the same thing. Most Americans want this country to be a place that in which anyone has a fair shot at success, that if you work hard and you apply yourself, you can make it in America. That's what America has historically stood for, at least you know when we were growing up and, and kind of took for granted that idea, right? That's what makes America exceptional, the idea that you can, you can come here from anywhere, you can, you can be born on the wrong side of the tracks, and you can still make your way up in this country, right? That's supposed to be what America is about. And to the degree we're falling short on that, uh, I, I think, you know, you'd find Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, all sorts of people would agree that that's something we should aspire to, right? So so in that way, our observation, our thesis at FREOP, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, and that name is very deliberate, uh, our argument is that actually most Americans agree that equal opportunity is a principle that we all stand up for. We all want Americans stand up for, and we may quibble or disagree about how to achieve it. We may disagree or quibble about how to define it. But if we have that value that unites us, then we're actually not 
in a contest of values in which we should all hate each other and treat each other as enemies. We should actually try to get together and come up with ideas that we can persuade the public will achieve those goals of ma making America an economically fairer place. And by economically fair, I don't mean it in the way that, say, a Bernie Sanders means it. I mean in a place where everyone has that fair shot at success. And, um, and, and so that's why we started Free Up. We thought, A, we had some insights into economics that allowed us to come up with ideas that could work. And B, we felt like we had some insights into politics in terms of coming up with an approach to these issues that could bring more people together and most importantly, bring the rising generations together. Because, you know, the old codgers like to say about millennials and, and Gen Zers, oh, you know, you, you all, you're all socialists, you know, you just don't, you don't, you don't understand what, what made America great, blah, 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 you know, get off my lawn. And, and that's not what, I, I'm a Gen Xer and I, I don't observe that. I observe actually millennials in general wanting an inclusive economy, but believing in entrepreneurship, believing in innovation, not really being impressed by government bureaucracy and all the things that previous generations have kind of clogged us up with, right? So I'm actually very optimistic about the values that, that rising generations have. And I think our job at, at, a, at a productive think tank, hopefully, is to, is to generate the ideas that can help realize that vision. Yeah, and I think you're putting great ideas out there. I mean, one that I've become passionate about the last two years is energy policy. And uh, I'm very happy to see you pushing nuclear. It's like, all right, if we can agree, we want to use cleaner energy uh, and we want to bring cheaper energy, which uh, is good and benefits the, the people in the lower rungs of the economic ladder the most because it helps them reduce their their uh their cost of living on a month-to-month -month basis so that they can go do other things with their money, maybe save some money and reinvest capital uh, into their own lives and their own well-being. And uh, it's, it's hilarious watching uh, like the Green New Deal, uh, the, the policies that they want to push through that particular act, which if enacted, you can make a very strong argument. I think we're seeing the products of these types of policies already playing out and proving the point that it's actually going to make these people worse off because you're just going to increase electricity cost for these people while also making it less reliable. Yeah, you know, this is this is a, a great example of a free op issue. So uh, uh, so what, one of the things that we do, the way we um, uh, uh, bracket the, what we do uh, and, and make sure that we don't get distracted and we stay on point is we require all of our scholars to center their work around ideas that expand economic freedom and improve the lives of Americans whose incomes or wealth are below the U.S. median. If it doesn't meet those two tests, we won't work on it. And, and, and we are of the view, uh, the kind of core idea in a sense behind FreeOp is that the most progressive idea ever invented is freedom. Freedom is the thing that has created more economic equality than any other idea that humanity has ever conceived of. And energy policy is a great example of this because the, the standard um, environmentalist progressive, like left environmentalist policy menu is in order to reduce carbon emissions and save the planet, we've got to make energy scarcer and more expensive so fewer people consume it. And that's how we're going to save the planet, which is um, uh, problematic on two fronts. First of all, it's profoundly pessimistic about human ingenuity. 
right? It's profoundly pessimistic about our ability to come up with ways through technology to solve the problem of, of generating abundant energy that doesn't emit carbon dioxide. And the second problem with it is that it's highly anti-progressive economically, right? Because when you make energy more expensive, yes, the venture capitalists in Marin County uh, are gonna be fine, but if you have to commute two hours every day to your uh, waiter job in Santa Bar at a, a hotel in Santa Barbara from the inland, you know, from inland California, um, that's that your costs have gone up, and then you have the Secretary of Transportation saying, "Well, we're going to create a, a, a commuter tax on you, basically punishing you for driving that two hours <laughs> to the place that you can't afford to live to, to take this job." So. Uh, it's profoundly regressive what, uh, what kind of the standard policy menu uh, on the left on environmental policy. And, and, and the thing is that the thing that's so um, uh, uh, kind of crazy about, about energy policy is that the technology exists today to solve a lot of these problems. Nuclear fission technology today, like 1960s era technology uh, uh, is available to generate electricity in ways that reduce carbon emission. I mean, in, in France, I don't know what the exact numbers are today, but historically 70% of all electricity in France is generated through nuclear power. Um, there's no reason why that couldn't be true in the US. And now we have uh, a whole swath of new uh, technologies based on nuclear energy that can, that can do even better, that uh, address some of the problems around waste, there's some of the problems around systemic risk if you're your giant power plant somehow was to have a meltdown, which is a very, very, very rare event to begin with, but, uh, but new technologies are even uh, raising the standard further on that. So there's a lot to do there. And, and what's really cool is our, uh, our, new, our, our new nuclear energy scholars, actually a guy who I found because he was a Bitcoiner. He really? was a guy who uh, was on a, a, a Bitcoin telegram group in Austin. And he was, uh, he was announcing that he was, uh, he was having a meetup for people who are really interested in nuclear energy uh, as the path forward for Bitcoin. I'm like, hey, I'm looking for a nuclear energy scholar. Let's have lunch. And uh, here he is. There's, I'm very bullish on nuclear and Bitcoin uh, working together in the future. Like there's small modular reactor companies coming to market and they want to solve, Oklo being one of them, right. I believe the problem they want to solve is bringing cheap electricity to cities and towns that are away from large population areas that are usually running off something like a diesel engine or a very expensive energy source. And they have this problem like, all right, we can get to the city, we can get the reactors there, but it's going to take us time to build out the transmission lines uh, to actually connect to the grid to then serve that electricity. And that's a lot of opportunity costs. We're waiting there for 18 months with this, this reactor and it's not making any revenue. Well, guess what? Bitcoin miners can show up and you don't have to build a miles long transmission line that can hook up right to the source and produce revenue for you while you're building that out. Once that's built out, Bitcoin miners peel off, go to the next city. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really, uh, the deal that Oklo signed with Compass Mining is, is a great example of how uh, Bitcoin can help make the economics of nuclear power more feasible. Because the, one of the biggest challenges with nuclear energy is you have all these upfront costs to build the, the, the power plant. And, uh, and so you, you have a lot of risk up front when you do that. And so if you can sign a contract with a Bitcoin miner and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to pay you for this energy uh, so you don't have to build the grid or build the transmission lines or build the demand for your electricity that you're generating. You have enough guaranteed coming in that it makes the, the plant more economically feasible. That's in, an incredible advantage 
And, and as you know, a lot of people have been kind of making this point more generally that Bitcoin actually can accelerate uh, the implementation of nuclear energy and other uh, cleaner power sources because of that, because of the fact that it can it can address the economic economics of, of building the infrastructure. Yeah, one of the common uh, sayings that Bitcoiners say is Bitcoin miners are the uh, energy consumer of last resort. But in a lot of cases, I think people get it wrong. It's the first resort. Like you, when you want to build and bootstrap these operations, you need a first buyer. And then Bitcoin miners will always be that first resort if you're willing to give them a fair price. Yeah. I mean, the, the big problem in nuclear energy, and this is why we, we really wanted to invest in it from a think tank perspective, is the regulatory environment. Basically, we have a uh, federal agency, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, that has not approved a new nuclear plant in, I don't know the exact number of years, but several decades. And there needs to be a complete overhaul of the way we regulate the construction of new plants. And basically what we're doing is, you know, you have uh, nuclear energy has enemies on both sides. The renewable guys, wind and solar hate nuclear because they see it as a rival, as a threat, as a competitor. And then natural gas and, and the fossil guys don't like nuclear because similarly they see it as a competitor. And so, Everybody gangs up on nuclear, and nuclear has no friend. It's kind of this orphan in the energy uh, uh, debate. And, and the end result is nuclear plants are not only not getting approved by the NRC, but various localities, big localities like New York City and, you know, and California are, are closing their nuclear plants, which is crazy because like in California, they're saying, well, we're going to require everyone to have electric cars, but we're also going to shut down the nuclear power plants that provide us with electricity, which means you're going to have to have more coal-based power plants. So there's just, uh, you know, the, the irrationality and stupidity uh, is incredible for people who, who care, who came, claim to care a lot about these policy problems of, of CO2 and, and energy supply. So, you know, uh, we're we're really uh, excited about investing more. Like we, you know, our past, our historically, our energy um, uh, department, our energy uh, vertical has been more generalist on energy. Like basically, let's make let's yes, let's move to a more carbon-free environment, but let's also do so in a way that recognizes the near-term needs for a cheap, affordable, abundant energy. And I think what we've decided, what we've realized, is that the nuclear piece is really important to focus on because without people like us pushing for it, it's not going to happen. No. I mean, <clears throat> I, I love natural gas, oil, uh, even coal to some extent, but I think anybody who is rational and logical can look at nuclear and say it's the most energy-dense resource out there. Like It is illogical that we're not trying to push this forward. And right. It is weird. It's both like the fact that they shut down Indian Point, now they want to shut down Devil's Canyon. I mean, Indian Point, replacing that with natural gas, uh, substations, uh, like you mentioned, in California, they're just going to import coal electricity from somewhere like Wyoming uh, or somewhere else, and it's we live in a clown world. It's, it's like, why can't we just <laughs> come to understand that this doesn't make any sense, and nobody's benefiting from this at the end of the day? Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, obviously, in the in the last year or so, we've talked a lot about the energy fud in in, in Bitcoin land, and and uh, I'm not super worried about the energy FUD in the sense that, you know, as a, as a think tanker, I, I spent a lot of time worrying about what Washington is trying to do to us, right? Um, and the energy FUD, while there's a lot of rhetoric around it, um, I just don't see a lot of regulation or ac activity from the government on the horizon 
on the basis of Bitcoin, you know, uh, uh, requiring energy for its security. Yes, it's a, it's a talking point. A lot of people talk about it, but I don't see it as a dominant factor in what Washington cares about. They care a lot more about um, uh, the threat of money laundering, uh, terrorism, evading SWIFT, evading taxes. Um, those are the things that that uh, that they are particularly concerned about. Yes, which. Leads us to what uh, was the impetus for us getting together was the article you wrote in National Affairs. Uh, was it Bitcoin in the U.S. fiscal reckoning? That's right. And, and so there was something you mentioned earlier that wanted me to tag that article, which was the the, the uh, baby boomers basically looking at millennials and Zoomers and saying, ah, you guys don't work hard. You just want things given to you. But it, I think in that article, there was a section where you basically highlight like the last five decades, specifically after 1971, were an anomaly in not only U.S. history, but monetary history that that generation benefited greatly from. And we need to recognize that we are experiencing uh, a, a no, an anomaly in monetary history. And we should probably focus on trans transitioning out of that and not... Uh, curbing Bitcoin adoption, which is potentially a lifeboat away from a fiscal reckoning, which seems even inevitable at this point uh, when trillions lose uh, meaning. And, and when somebody says the word trillions, they don't even blink anymore. Yeah. You know, it was a, it, it was a very hard article to write. It's about 7,000 words or so, which might seem long, but actually each kind of subtopic in the article, I had to kind of really breeze through. Like, the, the section on Bretton Woods and the departure of Bretton Woods is like a pretty short summary of that very uh, complex period. Or, you know, talking about the treasury bond market, like, which is a very important topic. Like, you could re easily write 20,000 words about that. I had to basically, that was a couple of paragraphs. So it was, it was challenging to put it all together, but uh, uh, really gratified uh, that, that people in the Bitcoin community and, and in Washington uh, 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 found it useful. So that's been, um, it's been really cool to see that. How bad is the fiscal situation, in in your opinion, from your perspective? It's uh, it's worse than you think, and and what I mean by that is, um, yeah, it's it, it the one of the things that I, one of the reasons I wrote the article is that um, you know Bitcoiners are fond of talking about okay we've got this monetary inflation that you know all the money printing the debt the deficit that's going to have this there's going to be this comeuppance right. And the counter argument you hear from the establishment in D.C. of both parties is what we might call the mainstream policy community is that, well, well you know, people have been saying, you know, you cranks out there, you sound money cranks have been saying this for decades. Right. <laughs> people were saying this in the 70s when uh, when uh, Bretton, the Bretton Woods departure happened. People were saying this in the 80s. People have been saying this for decades, literally, and it hasn't happened yet. So uh, why should we believe you? You know, you've been crying wolf for 40, 50, 50 years and nothing has happened. So, um, you know, you're clearly wrong. And, and, and so one of the audiences I was really trying to, uh, to, to address in this article was that audience to say, look, you're right. Uh, uh, it's true that, that it hasn't seemed to have gone wrong yet. That's not exactly right because there are subtle and important things that have gone wrong. But it's also true that things haven't gone the way that um, the, the monetarists predicted they would, say, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And let's talk about that, why that is, and why you shouldn't be assured that that 
that to happy uh, uh, happy uh, time will continue. So that was one audience I was I was trying to address in the piece. Another audience I want to talk to in the piece is the the audience that basically obviously has heard of Bitcoin in, in Washington, but um, again they have they look at it as a negative, right? It's all about well people are using it to 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 uh, you know evade U.S. Swift the Swift regime and the sanctions regime and our ability to tax you and 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 that's why we've got to clamp down on all this stuff because it's basically being used by criminals and terrorists and ransomware hackers. So 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 that group you know I wanted to address like in terms of like this national security nationalist side of U.S. policy debate. If you if you're pro America and the thing that matters to you more than anything else is America's success. You know a lot of Bitcoiners say, well, who cares about America's success? Bitcoin success is what matters. I'm not tied to the U.S. I'll leave and I'll go to El Salvador or wherever if I, if I need to, right? But there are lots of people, particularly people who have a lot of power in Washington, who, who don't share that point of view, right? They, they're like, no, I want America to succeed. I don't care if Bitcoin succeeds, right? And so um, uh, that was another audience I want to address. It's, okay, what is the pro-America case for Bitcoin? And then I also want to address the Bitcoin audience, even though, you know, because I was publishing in National Affairs, not Bitcoin Magazine, right? I'm obviously really particularly gearing it towards the Washington crowd, but I also wanted to, to speak to the Bitcoin audience in the sense of, um, you know, we're all obviously, uh, those of us who, who've, you know, made money on Bitcoin and watched it go up, we're obviously all thrilled about that and, 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 and we love how Bitcoin has performed over the last 13 years. But um, we should be aware of the fact that if we are right, if Bitcoin does ultimately become the global store of value, the, the reserve asset of the world economy in the next 10, 20, 30 years, there will be a lot of social disruption in the U.S. and around the world as a result of that. And that could be both harmful to Bitcoin, the network, to those who, to, who participate in it, and, and certainly, especially to those who don't participate, who get left behind. And we, the Bitcoin community, I think, have to think harder and more seriously about that problem. Because if we don't think hard about that problem and figure out how to transition the US and the world out from the fiat system to the Bitcoin system, um, uh, it could it could be costly to us and to them both. Completely agree. It's a very somewhat of a precarious situation, right? Because it, I think a lot of Bitcoiners, particularly in the last six months, are mentally preparing. Like they're going to blame Bitcoin. They're going to blame Bitcoin. That's why I love your piece because I think you acutely highlight like there these these problems are uh, long in the making and are not Bitcoin is solving these problems, not causing them. But the crowd, the masses, don't don't always have the time to dig deep and understand these problems. Uh, themselves unless we actively get out in front and say, hey, Bitcoin is a solution to this problem. Uh, this, this fiscal reckoning is inevitable. You can't just print money ex nihilo uh, uh, forever and, and not have consequences. There have been a lot of consequences, I would argue. Obviously, the Cantine effect is one that Bitcoiners talk about a lot. It's like the, the inequality between the super rich and the super poor has been uh, expanded drastically, particularly over the last 15 years. Uh, and uh, many Bitcoiners would argue that's that's money printing. Uh, on top of that, a uh, few other things you mentioned in your article is that uh, we were only supposed to go off the gold standard temporarily. It wasn't temporary. Like that should, that should tell you something's up. And then on top of that, even worse, uh, you talked about the bond market a little bit, but you have 
foreign countries that typically would use the U.S. treasuries as a safe haven asset actively unwinding their positions in treasuries, which should be a, a, a canary in the coal mine. Like people are losing faith in, in the U.S. government's ability to, in conjunction with the Federal Reserve, to uh, maintain the, the status of the dollar. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I mentioned before that the fiscal picture is worse than you think. And, and, and a big part of, in fact, the reason I got into Bitcoin, other than just having a bunch of Austrian economist friends who were in my ear about it from the beginning, was uh, I'd, I'd uh, done a lot of work on healthcare policy. And the, the debt and deficit in the United States is driven entirely by the runaway growth in healthcare entitlements, Medicare, Medicaid, to a lesser degree, Obamacare. And um, those are, that's a big part of what, one, one, another big area for us at FreeOp is trying to solve that problem. How do you actually make healthcare affordable for people, but in a way that doesn't bankrupt the country? And unfortunately, we're going in the opposite direction. We're, we're increasingly bankrupting the country, driven really by, by healthcare policy and healthcare entitlements uh, growing every year at an unsustainable rate. And so being acutely aware of how difficult that problem is to solve politically, let alone technically, um, is what led me to believe, okay, my day job is going to be trying to solving this problem, trying to fix the healthcare system. Uh, but uh, as a hedge against my, uh, you know, my, my, my day job, I got to be aware of the fact that, you know, uh, there's a good chance I'll be wrong. I, I won't succeed at doing this and others who care about it won't succeed at doing it. And, and, uh, and, the, and the monetary and fiscal runaway printing problem will, will be something you have to hedge your, your portfolio against. And that's how I first started to build a position in Bitcoin in, uh, in 2014. And, uh, um, you know, obviously nothing has uh, dissuaded me of that thesis <laughs> over the last uh, seven, eight years. And, and, the, um, and the COVID period in particular, the financial crisis and the COVID period combined have, have been really, really problematic. And, and, you know, the thing is, you know, as you said, Bitcoiners talk about the, the Cantillon effect. And um, for those who don't know what the Cantillon effect is, it's this idea that um, uh, there was a, an Irish-French economist named Richard Cantillon who, who uh, articulated this idea that basically what, what happens when you print a lot of money is the inflation doesn't distribute equally through the economy simultaneously, which is this. Milton Friedman has this very simplistic articulation where he says, well, if you print more money, there will be, you know, prices will go up by X, right? If you print, if you, print, if, if you expand this monetary supply by X and the velocity of money stays constant, then uh, uh, the prices will go up by X. And that's uh, overly simplistic. It's one of the many things actually that I would argue Milton Friedman gets wrong and Cantillon gets right. And, and what Cantillon argues is that, well, the way inflation works is when you print the money, the people who get the money first benefit the most because the things they buy that with that money are still cheap. And eventually, as the money flows through the system, the people who get it last are the ones who are left holding the bag. And, and translated into the modern context, uh, what that means is that uh, the people who receive the Fed's money that the Fed prints, which are basically large banks, hedge funds, venture capitalists, and other large financial institutions and the wealthy, they get the money first, and then they use it to buy the things they want to buy, which are basically other investable assets like stocks, bonds, real estate, venture capital, private equity. And... Um, those, the value of those things continues to go up, and uh, the average person wakes up one day and realizes that, that the you know that the price of the home they wanted to buy has gone up by two x, 
Um, and, and so, you know, it used to be when I was a kid that the average person could aspire to own his own home. And now uh, that's out of reach for, for at least half the population, possibly more. Um, and, and so, you know, what's interesting is it's not just Bitcoiners who understand this. You know, as someone who, you know, spent a good chunk of my life in the, in, in the financial community on Wall Street, pretty much everybody on Wall Street understands that this is happening, that there's an asset bubble in the U.S. and around the world that's being driven by expansionary monetary policy. And, uh, you know, if, if you're at a bar with a bunch of hedge funders, they'll, they'll talk about it. They'll be like, yeah, this is crazy. But, but it, while, they, they, while they would complain about it intellectually, same time, they're all making money off of it, right? I'm, and I'm not saying that to you know, criticize their motives at all. It's just like when you're getting rich because of it, you're not as motivated to solve the problem as the people who are getting poor because of it, right? And, and so that is the, the political economy problem we have right now is that there are a lot of people who realize that this is totally unfair and stupid and crazy who are part of the financial community, but um, you know, they just don't have the economic incentive to, to really stop it because they benefit from it in the short term. Yeah, it's all, yeah, it's all incentives. And I mean, this is a classic don't hate the player, hate the game scenario where the game is so rigged and these people are, whether you like it or not, you can say smart enough or fortunate enough or lucky enough to position themselves on the chessboard uh, in such a way where they know they're going to benefit. And like, what do you do? Do you get mad at these people? Which there are certainly some of them. Yes, you can get mad at uh, I would argue, however, like you should focus a layer below that, which is the game board that they're stepping on in the first place. Like, if that's not fair. Why even? Why even play the game? Yeah, and and this is uh, this is why you know this is again going back to our uh, initial uh, section of the conversation. That's why free app exists, right? You know, I, I think a lot of um, a lot of our take on on the economic challenges that that uh, millennials and Zoomers and everyone face today. You know, our critique of the system in terms of how it's rigged is not in, 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 it's not that different from what Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders might say. You know, I, I'll hear Bernie Sanders rant and with his hair flying in every direction, I'll be like, you know, I agree with 70% of what he's complaining about. The difference is the solution. Mm-hmm. Right? Their argument is the solution is actually doubled down on the things that got us to this point. And our argument is that we have to break through and restore uh, an innovative, free entrepreneurial economy in which um, incumbents are challenged by disruptors. And one of the interesting things about our work has been when we started free up with that, okay, you know, um, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see who sort of basically tries to knock us down and, and criticize us and stuff. And and there's been some of that in terms of like the left right debate, right? But actually, we found that uh, much to it's been very gratifying actually that. We've uh, we've we've had an audience in on both in both the Democratic and Republican parties. We've had people in the center left and the center right and the libertarians and and, 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 and a whole range of people who who found our work uh, worth engaging and, and thinking about and, and incorporating into their own work. The, the biggest uh, hurdle that we've uh, found in terms of getting turning our ideas into law has been the power of incumbent industries. That uh, that basically, you know, in, in in Washington, the mentality is there's the socialists on one side and there's the business business interests on the other side, and if you're not a socialist, the only other side to choose is the side of the business interests, the organized business interests, 
And uh, the, the average consumer, the taxpayer, the, the individual is kind of left out of that conversation. And, and that's the big problem. And again, en energy is a great example. We're talking about that, right? It's like basically nuclear, particularly these, these, these new uh, startup uh, nuclear companies should be uh, doing a lot more than they're being able to do, they're being allowed to do right now, but they can't because the organized incumbents basically are lobbying Congress all the time to say, don't allow them to get a foothold. It's dangerous, it's risky. And, and that's not just true in uh, in energy, but across the board, it's true in healthcare, it's true in banking, it's true in a lot of areas. Yeah, is your most recent piece on healthcare about ripping the red tape off of research? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a great example. You know, uh, there, there's a, the, the default argument you hear in say the Wall Street Journal, which I, I respect a lot in a lot of ways, but the Wall Street Journal editorial page will say, you know, anything that involves calling the pharmaceutical industry to account for the prices it charges is communism, it's socialism, it's leftism. Um, and that fails to take into account the fact that patents are government enforced monopolies. Yeah. And we may believe that they're legitimate in many cases, but they're still government enforced monopolies. When you apply for a patent, there's a bureaucrat at the US Patent and Trademark Office that decides whether to issue that patent or not. And that bureaucrat may not know what the hell he's doing, right? <laughs> he may issue you a patent for something that really isn't that innovative. And then on top of that, you take the fact that our entire healthcare system is this highly regulated subsidized thing where, you know, you and I as taxpayers are giving money to Medicare to pay for these drugs. Um, and, the, and, and the pharmaceutical companies are basically treating your money as an ATM saying, oh, well, Medicare is paying for it. And Medicare by law is required to pay for it. So I'm gonna charge a million dollars for this drug because Medicare is gonna write me the check. So maybe next year I'll charge $2 million for the drug. <laughs> and if you try to criticize that, the Wall Street Journal says, well, you're a bad person, you're a leftist. It's like, no, it's like, that's crony capitalism. That's a corporate welfare. That's not, that's not a free enterprise system at all. That's funny because then they'll look at the university system and say they're just leveraging the, the easy money for student debt to raise oh, yeah, their prices. Oh yeah, it's exactly the same thing, right? So there you have a system where the, the government says, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna subsidize student loans. We're gonna take over the student loan industry so everyone can, can have, a, have, a, have their college paid for by the government, by the taxpayer. So what do the colleges do? They say, oh, this is great. I can double my prices and, the, and, and I don't have to feel guilty about it because the government is going to pay the student or lend the money to the student, which the money the student can default on and nobody quote unquote cares, but the taxpayer cares, right? Because the taxpayer is, is on the hook for, for that, so. Yeah, and this is funny. This is actually where trickle down economics plays in because it trickles down to like private schooling and high school and then in grade oh, yeah. school where they raise tuition because hey, your uh, diploma from this high school is gonna get you into a college worth X amount. Therefore, we can charge higher even though people aren't getting government loans at the high school level or before that, it's just trickle-down price increases. That's the way it works. It's crazy. We've been looking at some of the private schools in Austin, which is not that expensive compared to, say, New York City, where I used to live. Uh, but, you know, I've looked at some of the private schools in Austin for my kids, and, um, you know, there was a school that was charging, like, $40,000 a year for tuition for first grade. <laughs> I'm like, that's more than I paid to go to medical school, you know? And it's, like, first grade. So it's just, like, that's just crazy. And that's you know, you know, to going back to the Bitcoin piece of it, right? Like this is why the standard consumer price index type measures of inflation are, are not accurately measuring what's going on, right? That 
housing, um, uh, post-secondary education, um, uh, and, and so many other things, healthcare, uh, services, right, that can't be quantitatively eased where there's a limit on the supply, those are the things that are going up. And, and you know, one of the quotes you hear a lot of Bitcoiners mention about, about inflation is, is, again, a Milton Friedman quote where he says, Mon uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And this is another example of something I would argue that Friedman gets wrong. It's not always and everywhere a monetary uh, phenomenon. One of the things that we end up spending a lot of time at FreeUp on is rising cost, the rising cost of living. Yes, some of that's driven by money printing, but a lot of it's driven by things like regulations that force businesses to ha add on a lot of things to their products that drive up the cost of those products. Now, some of those regulations may be good in the sense that you, you know, protect consumers from a public safety standpoint, things like that, but others may be unnecessary, but that drives up the cost. When we subsidize things, like when we subsidize the student loans, then the colleges raise their prices and that makes college less affordable, right? That's a driver of inflation also. So it's not just monetary policy that drives inflation. On the flip side, what, there have been some massive deflationary trends over the last 40 years. The rise of free trade around the world is really a recent global phenomenon. It really started uh, in the 80s and 90s, and, and we've been benefiting from it now for, again, 30, 40 years. Technology, the invention of the personal computer, let alone the smartphone, that also drove a wave of deflation. And, and so when people say, oh, we've, we've had these easy money policies, we've printed all these dollars, and there hasn't been any inflation, and since Milton Friedman tells us inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, we must be good, right? And that, that has been a catastrophic mistake to, to, to believe that, right? That in fact, what's happened is if there hadn't been this revolution in the personal computer and the smartphone, if there hadn't been this revolution in global free trade, then inflation would be running rampant right now, more than it already is. Obviously, we've had high inflation this, this past 12 months, um, but inflation over the last 40 years would have been far worse if it hadn't been for this unique period of time when we had massive deflationary trends in the world economy. And so what I see now is a world in which the, the, the global regime of free trade has matured. There's not a lot of low-hanging fruit anymore in terms of reducing trade barriers. There's some, but not much. Um, Technology in terms of, you know, uh, you know, smartphones and things will perhaps continue to improve, but can you really reduce further the cost of making a t-shirt or, or growing bananas? Probably not. Um, so we're at a point where that, that, that thing that we've enjoyed on the deflationary side for the last 40 years is starting to plateau, which means that even the consumer price index with all the ways in which it's gamed and rigged to underestimate inflation monetary expansion is going to start showing up there. It's not going to be able to hide. Yeah. And especially if Moore's Law is right and we are hitting limits to which these technologies can increase in productivity efficiency, it's going to happen. We'll see. I mean, you know, innovation, you don't want to bet against innovation and ingenuity, but but there are reasons to be concerned on that front. And, you know, as you mentioned in the piece, in the National Affairs piece, Bitcoin and the U.S. Fiscal Reckoning, one of the things I spend a fair amount of time on that I think I haven't seen articulated elsewhere, at least in the in, in the Bitcoin uh, community, is this is this uh, point about how the Treasury bond market works and how it is manipulated is a strong word, but just 
There are structural aspects of the way the U.S. is able to issue its debt and borrow money that have uniquely contributed to this period of time where we, we, we've been able to run uh, uh, so much debt and print so much money and not pay the piper for, for those policies. And that's um, something that I think, again, a lot of people don't understand, the fact that um, uh, banks, based on certain international banking accords, are effectively pushed, if not required, to own treasury bonds because it's, it's calculated as a risk-free asset. It's defined as a risk-free asset. So if you own anything other than treasury bonds, you're penalized for that in terms of having a capital cushion as a bank uh, to, to prevent and protect yourself against downturns. And so banks have to own treasury bonds. And you have the fact also that because the U.S. is the biggest economy in the world and is the most indebted country in the world on, on in absolute dollars, um, it's the most liquid security in the world. And so if you are uh, a financial institution of size and you need to park your money somewhere, uh, you know, big uh, uh, treasury bonds, 10-year treasury bonds, for example, are something you can come in and out of. You can buy a billion dollars worth of treasury bonds and not move the price that's really important if you're a very large financial institution, right? So those kinds of factors, uh, among others, have artificially inflated the value of the U.S. Treasury bond and thereby uh, compressed the interest rates at which the U.S. can borrow money. And the most important of these factors is the fact that the Federal Reserve has now started to directly control the interest rates and the price of these Treasury bonds in a way that is a radical departure from prior Fed policy. So it used to be prior to the financial crisis of 2008 that the, um, that the Fed only controlled or manipulated the overnight federal funds rate, which was the rate at which financial institutions lend money to each other overnight. After the financial crisis, and this was something that Ben Bernanke first proposed in, in the early 2000s and was able to basically implement when he became the Federal Reserve Chairman, um, was to basically manipulate the entire spectrum of the treasury bond market by buying the debt directly. It's kind of like, you know, if I run up a debt on a credit card uh, and then I, I take out another credit card to, to uh, pay off the first credit card, you know, that's basically what the U.S. government has done. And the trend lines are really, really concerning that over the last 10 years, uh, the amount of treasury bonds and, and treasury securities owned by the U.S. government has skyrocketed, and the, the share owned by foreign investors, whether governments or foreign financial institutions, has steadily declined. And we're going to get to a point in the next 10 years where uh, a majority, or, or a plurality at the very least, of, uh, of the U.S. debt on the market is owned by the U.S. government. And that is just a recipe for disaster. And you get to a point where, like right now, our federal debt's $30 trillion, right? Imagine very soon, the federal debt's going to be $100 trillion, right? It was $8 trillion at the end of George W. Bush's uh, uh, presidency, if I recall correctly. And now it's $30 trillion, right? In 10 to 20 years, it could be $100 trillion. You know, there's only $250 trillion of wealth in the world. You know, so eventually, you run out of money. There's not, there's not enough wealth in the world to lend to the United States as we scale up our debt. And that is the, the coming crisis that we hope Bitcoin will help us, uh, at least as average people, uh, get out from under. It's pretty scary when you put it 
uh, so plainly like that. And, it, and again, going back to like incentives, when, when you have something like Basel III dictating that these large capital allocators and banks have <clears throat> assets on their balance sheet, uh, a lot of which have to be risk-free and you designate treasuries as risk-free. And just think of the incentive that creates for the government and the treasury. It's like, oh, we, we can be complacent. They need to buy. They need to buy these assets. There's nothing we need to back it up with. It's just a necessity. It's a it's part of the game. It's part of the rules. They have to do it. So we don't have to back that up with any effort or productivity. And they probably don't think that, but it's just like the natural incentives. Like, ah, we weren't that productive this quarter, but don't worry. People need to buy our treasuries anyway. Yeah. And, and that um, and that is the vicious cycle that, that we're in that's very hard to get out of. And, and that's kind of what I walked through in the piece, right? Is that, you know, solving the entitlement problem is hard. Right, uh, uh, reforming the healthcare system is hard because the hospitals and the drug companies that benefit from how expensive our healthcare is are going to fight like hell to to keep all that money and get more of it. Right, and they have a lot of money, so they can they can uh, they have the resources to fight that fight. So reforming healthcare is hard, um, and so if you're the government and you can't reform the healthcare system and the healthcare entitlement so that the taxpayer can has, can can spend less money on it. Uh, and the debt keeps going up. Well, how are you going to pay for that debt? If if uh, if Russia and China are going to stop buying treasury bonds, and and foreign investors are going to stop buying treasury bonds, and even Ray Dalio is going to stop buying treasury bonds or buy for certainly a lot fewer of them, what's left? You got to buy them yourself to just keep things going. Because if there's a massive spike in interest rates, because basically the way the bond market works is if the price of the bond is higher. The interest rate is the effective interest rate that's implied in that price is lower. So high bond prices are mean low interest rates. Low bond prices mean high interest rates. And so when you uh, when you're the when you're the government, you say, okay, I'm going to buy up all the treasury bonds to goose up the price, and that lowers the interest rates. That's that's why we have this you know, economy that we everyone's partying in today. But you know, uh, you're worried, right? Like you, you don't want to if you if you pull back. Then interest rates go up, and if interest rates go up, what happens? The price of a mortgage goes up, which affects the housing market. The price of the risk of stock, the stock market goes up, and the stock market the stock market starts to go down as people say, "Wow, you know, interest rates are going up. That means I can't borrow as much money to plow into the stock market or other things. So I'm going to have to invest less in the stock market because I can't borrow as much because the interest rates, the cost of borrowing, has gone up, and so you see a pullback in the stock market. And every Fed governor is terrified. Jay Powell in particular, uh, that uh, if, if they pull back on what they're doing, the stock market will crash, the housing market cr- will crash, and the financial system will crash. And it will be on their uh, tombstones that they allowed that to happen. And they're more worried about that than anything else. The congressmen are more worried about getting reelected than anything else. And so the path of least resistance, unfortunately, is to keep doing what we're doing. And the only way out is for uh, good men and women in, in Washington and in the country to, to, uh, to tr- take those risks and solve these problems. And that's what we're trying to help happen. Yeah. Number one, I do feel for Jer- Jerome Powell. Like you can see it on his face during these Fed meetings. Like he is visibly stressed out about the situation uh, that he finds himself. Like again, like he, that's the, the Federal Reserve chair uh chairman or chairwoman position you get handed this hot potato and you don't want to be the last one holding it specifically with bernanke janet yellen and jerome powell he's probably thinking i just need to get it to the next one 
and and then it's not my problem. I'm the I'm not the one holding the bag. I'm not the one who was fed share when when all this went to shit. But it, it is a stereotypical textbook case study in sunk cost fallacy. Like we all know, this is unsustainable into perpetuity. I mean, I guess the last the last uh, arrow in the quiver is to try to validate MMT, which isn't going to happen. Or I mean, they may certainly try, but I think we all know that it's just going to perpetuate what has already been happening for the last five decades. And not only that, but uh, put some accelerant on it. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, intellectually, MMT has no credibility. Even Paul Krugman says MIT, MMT doesn't work. But, but, the, but the problem is, operationally, that's what we're doing, right? Like, it, it, we're, we, the, the policy that, that our country is embarked on is the policy of MMT, that we can just print our way out of the problem. We don't actually have to solve the debt and deficit. We don't have to even tax people. We just print the money in and it'll solve it, right? Like, that is what we're doing, and that's what's so um, dangerous about this situation. And again, like, you know, if you're a Bitcoiner, you may think, oh, this is awesome because this means Bitcoin is going to go up and I'm going to make more money. But um, uh, the the social uh, dislocation and, and the temptation of government to do a lot of things to bring the hammer to Bitcoin uh, are going to be, it's good, that temptation is going to be very high. And there are things that the government can do to uh, make the Bit- Bitcoin network less useful. But right? it can't obviously ban the Bitcoin network. The Bitcoin network will go on whether the U.S. wants it to or not, just like it did in China. But I think what, what the China experience the China experience has led to, I think, a lot of complacency among uh, Bitcoiners. Oh, well, China banned Bitcoin. Nothing happened. So what's the big deal, right? And uh, I, I think that's um, uh, uh, too complacent, too optimistic, because you don't have to ban Bitcoin to make it very hard to use for Americans. You can basically say, uh, as Janet Yellen wanted to do, you, you can say, well, we're just going to tax capital gains on Bitcoin transactions at 80%. And that basically makes for institutions, for Michael Saylor, for people who have to abide by the tax laws of the country, um, it makes Bitcoin uh, an unusable asset for them because all the gains from it basically evaporate. And so that not only affects the price of Bitcoin and the demand for Bitcoin, but also the the decentralized nature of Bitcoin, right? Because for, for Bitcoin to serve its purpose, as many people as possible have to own it and, and help operate the network. Yeah. And then you get in the KYC AML, they can force yeah. people to hold it on exchanges, not take self-custody, which is, in 2022, my goal is to be more level-headed. I've been very hot-headed about all this because I see it and it's just frustrating because it's like Bitcoin, the protocol is very much aligned with the ideals this country was founded on. Yeah. Like if you are an American, you believe in uh, the ideals that this country was founded on, like Bitcoin is a no-brainer. It literally Im- <laughs> embeds the, the right to uh, free property into, free private property, excuse me, into code. And a private public key pair is, a private key is private property that uh, should be respected and not only respected, but celebrated by Americans and the politicians that are running this country. Uh, and it has been hard to see it maligned by the likes of Elizabeth Warren and many others, Brad Sherman, uh, and and a few other politicians, and uh, I think education is the way out. Okay, this and that's what you have it on on your mission statement. You mentioned Bitcoin in your mission statement it is uh, giving equal and open opportunity to everybody. It's an open source 
protocol that anybody can can latch into if they want to. And I think that's the message we have to drive drive home in in DC. Because whether I, obviously all the anarcho capitalists out there listening to the show are screaming right now, but. <laughs> You can't ignore that we're going to have to deal with with these entities to some extent. Yeah, I, I think that um, I, I, you know, I have great, great sympathy for the anarcho-capitalists, but um, I am also acutely aware of the power of the U.S. government, and and uh, it has been brought to bear on a lot of people who who share our values and uh, over the years, and that's why Satoshi Nakamoto went into hiding, uh, right? I mean, because uh, he or it. Uh, or they uh, have, have that awareness. So uh, it's something to be very, very concerned about. And, and um, you know, I, I think we're at a particular moment in time where the, the situation is fragile, right? Because Bitcoin is not yet strong enough and robust enough to ward off a full frontal assault from the U.S. government. Uh, but it will be in the future. I do believe that you can you can get to a point in five to ten years, hopefully sooner, where there are enough publicly traded companies that uh, that are Bitcoin ventures, uh, where enough people own Bitcoin in the United States, where if the government does try to do something, they'll face massive political and legal opposition, uh, and the, the the political power of the Bitcoin community will be sufficient. To ward off those attacks, it, for, it hasn't been to date. Like you know, uh, the the infrastructure bill that uh, that uh, that you know that did all that did all these weird stuff around saying you know if you if you facilitate a proof of stake transaction, you you know you're going to be you're going to have to report that somehow. Like you know, uh, obviously members of Congress were, were caught off guard by how many people called and, and and called in and yelled at them for for doing this, but they still did it, right? So. For all that uh, uh, satisfaction that the Bitcoin community got, hey, look, we showed our, our might and our power by yelling at our congressman, didn't stop the law from passing, right? Uh, and, and, um, and so the Bitcoin community is not yet politically strong enough to get to that point, and I think has not also done a, a sufficient job of persuading Washington of the virtue and value of Bitcoin. I think that started to change. You know, you were you were mentioning before, um, you know, that that Bitcoin is is the most American thing there is, or is it very much embodies American values. And one of one of the passages I quote in in the National Affairs article is from uh, Ludwig von Mises' Theory of Money and Credit, where he describes sound money as uh, a companion, a philosophical and moral companion to bills of rights, because just as the American Bill of Rights says the, the government cannot arbitrarily take your property, condemn it, invade it you know, through a search warrant, uh, you know, build a railroad over it. They have to respect that it's your property and you know, compensate you accordingly and, and respect your rights to, to your own property and your, and your liberty. Um, the, the right to sound money is exactly the same because when the government doubles the supply of U.S. dollars, it has cut the purchasing power of your U.S. dollars in half, um, and and so uh, th this idea that um, that uh, monetary expansion is or you know sound money is is fundamentally American is absolutely true. It was very much true. It was it was a, it was a universally held view in the 18th and 19th centuries. I shouldn't say universally, but nearly universally held, widely held view. That was sound money was the thing. Right, the, the, the free-floating system that we have today of fiat currencies is only 50 years old. And that's kind of one of the pieces, points I try to make in the article too, right? Is that we've all 
you know, been born and, and living our entire lives in this system, but the system is, is unprecedented. It's new. It's not the way the world has worked in the past. And the conceit of, again, the mainstream policy community as well, that old system was terrible. There were all these financial panics. And that's not exactly right. The financial panics were not because of the gold standard. Financial panics were because of the absence of deposit insurance. Once we had the FDIC saying your, your deposits of the bank are insured up to $200,000 or $150,000, you know, that, that, that really limited the runs on the banks at the retail level because you knew that you know, if you didn't have more than $150,000 at the bank, the FDIC insured it and you were fine, right? And that, that solved the problem more than you know, the, the, the peg of the, of the US dollar to gold. Yeah, then on top of that, like people completely dismiss the the mini depression of like 1922, right. I believe it was, where we were under a gold standard and we recovered pretty quickly. And then you had a massive expansion of debt between that that period in 1929 when things eventually blew up, and everybody blamed the gold standard and didn't look at the expansion of of debt throughout the economy and the stock market particularly. And, and it, it's hilarious because it came full circle. Uh, what did Glass-Steagall Act do? And they went and they're like, all right, how did this, how did this happen in 1929? Like, uh, why did this get so out of control and crash so vigorously? And, oh, it was because we were letting uh, these financial institutions trade amongst each other and lever up their their assets. So we're going to create this this separation between them. And then, boom, uh, Graham Leach Bliley in what 2001, 2002. Tears those walls down. It was 1996, but maybe you're right. It was 2001. Yeah. It was uh, that era. It was in that era, yeah. It was a Clinton Clinton presidency. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, look, it, it's it's uh, you know, there, there's obviously a lot of uh, rabbit holes you can go down in terms of all the, all the concepts that, that that the piece address and that that Bitcoiners should obviously think about and and and, and uh, reflect on. But your, your, your central point that, that Bitcoin is very American was something I really did want to drive home in the article because uh, an underappreciated component of the opposition to Bitcoin is what we might call conservative nationalists who, who worry that Bitcoin will undermine U.S. global power and worry that, um, that, that Bitcoin is not uh, it, it's this newfangled thing, and we're, if you're a conservative, your instinct is to support old things, right? That's the nature of being a conservative. And so one of the points I wanted to bring into the, to the conversation about Bitcoin for that audience is, hey, actually, uh, the intellectual tradition of sound money is actually a very, very old tradition. Satoshi Nakamoto was not the inventor of sound money. Sound money has been around for a long time, and many of the people who conservatives say they admire uh, like Hayek, like Mises, are people who articulated these concepts well before uh, Satoshi Nakamoto was born. Yeah, Hayek, we won't have a good money again until we rest it, rest control of it from the government. That's right. Like it's that's right. And that that work, the uh, the denationalization of money, which is a great book that that every sound money advocate should read because it's it's just so interesting. He 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 wrote it in the in the late '80s, early '90s. You know, so there was there was basically no internet. There was certainly no Bitcoin, and so. But he was trying to contemplate this. He expressly says it's a radical concept of like, how would we have a system of private money again instead of money that that is controlled and 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 dictated by governments? How would we do that? And his 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 theory or his vision was that private enterprise banks basically would like they did in the 19th century basically create their own paper notes that they would issue that would be backed by some you know inflation resistant asset like a you know gold or something else 
and 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 you there would be this free competition of banks based on what consumers thought the most reliable bank was and and that's maybe how we'd get it done he could obviously never have contemplated something like bitcoin but if you read the denationalization of money it's just so impressive how much of the intellectual underpinnings of bitcoin are anticipated in that in that monograph and uh it also again goes to show that um, you know, in Washington, there are lots of people who profess to love Hayek, who profess to love Mises and say that they're great, uh, but, um, but don't appreciate how much Bitcoin is um, the avant-garde of that tradition. And so I think, I hope that by presenting in that way that, that we, we gain some new converts over there. Yeah, it's literally a sly roundabout way. Like, <laughs> sly in the fact that it was snuck into this obscure mailing list uh, roundabout. <laughs> Open source, yeah. Depending on individuals uh, going around the government and other things, it's, yeah. And it, it, it blows my mind too. Like that traditional conservative is like Bitcoin's anti-American. You know, I don't even think he's conservative. This dude Dave Troy has been going off on Twitter saying it's it's uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are going to destroy American values. And I, I mean, you can make the argument that like dollar hegemony, particularly in defense of the petrodollar, has done more to harm us over the last two decades, particularly, I want to say post 9-11, than, than benefit us for just going out there, expanding our empirical reach or empire reach, making people pissed off, uh, less likely to do trade with us and more likely to want to harm us. And it's all to defend this this reserve status. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Uh, you know what, what I'd say is... is it, it, I, the way I the way I approach it is I actually don't think it's an unreasonable concern or fear. Like if you are if you are, you know, if you're somebody who's grown up in the Defense Department or the national security apparatus, and you really are passionate about the the fact that America has been a force for good in the world over the last seventy five years. That if if someone else was running the world since World War II, the world would be a much more dangerous place than if the U.S. were the leading power. And there are lots of people out there who, who really believe in that and believe in, in uh, the value of an America-led global order and worry that if, uh, if that America-led global order is undermined, that the world will be more dangerous than it is today. And I, I don't think that that is a, an unreasonable position. And I think the way I try to approach it in the, in the article and in conversations with, with that kind of person is to say, look, um, it's the nature of technology to make old ways of, uh, uh, of power obsolete. It's, that's, it's true in military terms, right? There's uh, ABMs and you know, anti-ballistic missiles that make certain types of missiles obsolete. There's you know, the, the, the catapult that made castles obsolete, right? The technology is always moving at a, a, in a way that makes old forms of power, uh, hard power obsolete. And Bitcoin exists now, cryptocurrency exists now, and there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. You're ne the SWIFT system is never going to be as effective as it was prior to 2008 because the technolo technology has made the SWIFT system obsolete. It has made the sanctions regime, regime increasingly obsolete. There's no going back. So you, you can't just wish away the new world in which uh, the Internet uh, of money exists, just like you can't wish away the existence of email. So the question then is, if you can't wish it away, and there are real costs, real transition risks to a world in which the U.S. doesn't have those um, leverage points, 
in, in the global world order, then what is the way that, say, 10, 20, 30 years from now, America can be as strong as possible and as constructive of a global participant as possible, given that reality? And what I try to argue in the piece, and certainly intend to develop, continue to further develop as, as a line of, of thinking, is, is that America actually has a huge strategic opportunity with Bitcoin, right? China has banned Bitcoin, and, and understandably from their point of view, right? If you're an authoritarian country that wants to control everything that your citizens do, what you really want is a central bank digital currency where you, as the People's Bank of China, have complete visibility into every time you know, a random person in China buys a can of Coke. That's what you want, and Bitcoin doesn't allow that, but a central bank digital currency version of the, you know, the renminbi does, right? So that's what China wants, and, and China will not, is not capable. It's one of the few areas in the global you know, economic rivalry between the US and China, it's one of the few areas where the US is basically guaranteed to win if it chooses to play the game. If America chooses to, to play the game, it's guaranteed to beat China when it comes to Bitcoin-related ventures, Bitcoin-related institutions, Bitcoin-related enterprises. And uh, you know what's ironic is that's, that is certainly happening. Obviously, we're, we're recording this in, in, in the offices of Unchained Capital, which is a great example of that kind of high-growth uh, business that's being uh, built here in the United States. Far more businesses would be built in the United States if we weren't doing stupid things through the SEC and elsewhere to prevent a lot of these businesses from being based here. They're being forced offshore by, uh, by the U.S. regulatory regime, which is stuck in this 1930s mentality. Um, but, but the strategic advantage is still there despite our own bumbling from a, from a government standpoint. And if we take advantage of it, the amount of wealth we can generate for Americans the ability we can generate for Americans to protect themselves from the inflation that Congress is incapable of combating for the reasons we've articulated. Uh, these are important things to do. And the thing we have to remember is, yes, the dollar is supreme now, and it's been supreme for probably 100 years, plus or minus. But for most of American history, the dollar was not the most important reserve currency. And yet the U.S. still grew spectacularly. The, the second half of the 19th century, particularly after the Civil War, was a time of enormous economic growth in the U.S. But the U.S. was not, the U.S. dollar was not the world's reserve currency in the late 19th century. And yet the U.S. still was an incredibly booming, prosperous place where everyone got wealthier and living standards went up dramatically, right? And so we are sort of fixated on this idea, oh gosh, what happens to America if, if, the, if Bitcoin replaces the treasury bond as the world's greatest store of value? And yes, you know, in an ideal world, the treasury bond would re revert to a hard money policy and continue to be a better store of value than it's been. But uh, if we assume that that doesn't happen in the base case scenario, there's still a path for America to continue to grow, for living standards in America to continue to improve, and for Americans to do well despite all these challenges we have ahead. So I think a lot of it is we've got to not sugarcoat the problems and wave them away. We have to take them seriously and understand that they're they are risks, they are dangers, they, they do mean a very different world in which the U.S. isn't guaranteed its place at the table the way it's been in the past. Uh, but there are massive opportunities for America as a country, uh, as a community of people to, to succeed in that environment. Yeah, you have to risk it for the biscuit. You gotta, you gotta realize that things are changing, times are changing, technology's changing, and you can't be a Luddite about this stuff, and you have to recognize the problems 
that that sit right before you and are glaring or obvious and seem somewhat insurmountable at this point. Like it is a bit risky. It is venturing into the unknown, but like you said, we should be confident. It would be a sign of lack of confidence in America's ability to actually succeed if you try to curb this, right? Like what happened to American ingenuity and innovation and the, the pick yourself up from your bootstraps mentality. Like why are you not confident that we can do that moving forward? It's, it's, it would be a very weak position to try to uh, curb Bitcoin adoption and innovation in the United States if you truly believe in the ideals that we just described, which worries me and honestly worries me because I do think there are a lot of people in uh, the federal government who, who see what China's doing with their social credit score and their control over the money and they want that as well, which is very frightening uh, as, as an American citizen. It's a huge problem. And, you, you know, uh, in term, when, when we thought about how to, how to get involved as a think tank uh, in this space, you know, uh, and we, we, we didn't for a long time, right? We've obviously been sitting there watching, uh, you know, uh, the crypto world evolve over the last, the free op is now five years old. We've watched it evolve over the last five years and, and kind of sat back for, for most of that period because uh, it wasn't clear what the compelling intersection of economic freedom and improving the lives of lower income Americans was. Not, not to say that we all know that Bitcoin can, can help obviously lower income Americans, but from a public policy standpoint, what are the laws and regulations that if changed would make a material impact on lower income Americans? There wasn't a, a lot to do. Most of the policy conversations say 2017 was about ICOs, which mm -hmm. is, not really about lower income Americans, not really. I mean, you know, uh, at least not in the way that we think about it. Uh, but what's happened in the COVID environment is this, you know, we we, ex we pushed the pedal to the metal in terms of driving over the cliff with the massive monetary expansion, the, the $6 trillion in additional federal spending that was unpaid for. So we did some things on the, on the fiscal and monetary side that really accelerated and worsened the problem and destabilized the dollar a lot more. And on, on the flip side, um, what we're doing in terms of the Federal Reserve's serious consideration of developing a, a CBDC has been of great concern to me. And, and I, I think one thing I, I observed from my uh, vantage point is that I didn't see the level, to me, CBDCs are alarming, truly alarming. Um, it's authoritarian, if not totalitarian money. When I talk to people in the in the Bitcoin crypto world, I think, yeah, obviously, look, I mean, Bitcoin maximalists think anything that isn't Bitcoin is terrible, right? But um, in the sort of, you know, mainstream crypto world, people are sort of like, whatever about CBC. Oh, yeah, you know, it's blockchain for the U.S. dollar. This is great. You know, I mean, there, there's this this kind of feeling that, well, this even the Federal Reserve thinks blockchain is cool now. Isn't that cool that they think that this is cool? Like, that makes me feel like I'm, I was the outcast before and now I'm the cool kid, right? Like, so there's that kind of mentality. And people, I think even a lot of people in the crypto community don't appreciate how a CBDC is really completely antithetical to the, it's, it's the exact polar opposite of Bitcoin. The exact polar opposite. If Bitcoin is censorship resistant money, a central bank digital currency version of the U.S. dollar is censorship, a total censorship capable money in a way that cash, hard cash is not. Um, and, and that is incredibly dangerous. And, and we've got to do everything we can to defeat the development of a central bank digital currency in the United States. And, and that is a project where I think FreeOp can actually make some headway. 
And that the one the one virtue of our system, it's actually it's a virtue and a vice, I guess you could say, is that it's very hard to do new things from a government standpoint, right? And and for better or for worse, the creation of a central bank digital currency is not something the Federal Reserve can just do on its own. It has to have the authority of Congress. Congress has to vest the authority in the Federal Reserve to create a central bank digital currency because it would be a meaningful expansion of the Federal Reserve's mandate. And uh, I think we've been pretty successful uh, in, the, in, in just a few months in making a lot more people in Congress aware of how dangerous a CBDC is. And um, I, I think that uh, if, it were, if it were ever to come to a point where the Fed asked uh, Congress for permission to develop a CBDC, it wouldn't happen. Not just because of us, also because the banks wouldn't want it, right? Because uh, if you have a central bank digital currency, you don't need banks, which is which is kind of like Saul Omarova, who was uh, Biden's nominee to to replace uh, Brian Brooks as the head of the Office of the Comptroller of Currency. What a nominee! I mean, she I loved it because like she wrote this like fifty page paper where she walked through exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, she's like, this is great. If we had a central bank digital currency, we could wipe out the entire banking sector, and the Federal Reserve could basically take money out of your bank account and put it in there whenever it wanted. Isn't that awesome? And I'm like. You see, I'm not the only person who, who understands what a CBDC can do. And, uh, and, and so that, that, uh, that was actually very helpful to, to the policy discussion. I think it brought it to the fore in a way that, that, uh, that accelerated the, the, the education of Congress. Um, but, but, I do, I, 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 but this is a fight that has to be fought because I think if we don't fight it, if we don't actually explicitly take the time to make this case to Congress, um, uh, the Fed will get its way. Yeah. Biden should have went with Ken Rogoff, a much more approachable uh, representative of that type of dystopian central bank digital currency. But that, that's who we have to like, who's Ken Rogoff uh, uh, advising right now? We need to get to that person. Like, don't <laughs> listen to this guy. Because he, I mean, he wrote the book. He wants, to, he wants to eliminate cash, bring in negative interest rate policy. Essentially, yeah. I think he described a CBDC before it even became part of the nomenclature. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 if you if look, I mean, uh, the Federal Reserve is 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 called a central bank for a reason because it, it's a centrally planned uh, management of the money supply and the economy. And 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 if you and if you're the kind of person who um, likes that, likes likes you know central planning of the economy, then obviously a CBDC is great because you can control fiscal policy and monetary policy on a much finer scale than you have the ability to do today. You know, you can do the thing where you. You send the stimulus checks with an expiration date, yeah, which a lot of people will talk about. Right? You can't do that today with conventional stimulus. So that's when you're a central banker, you love that. You're like, ooh, I can manipulate people even more. I can do more social engineering. Isn't that awesome? Uh, but that's not all you can do. And, and so, you know, I, I, I've been very concerned uh, by the, uh, even among crypto fluent, and there's, of course, very few people in Congress who are crypto fluent, but even among the ones who are, um, uh, I think that in general, the level of concern that they have about CBDCs is one one hundredth of mine, and so I've 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 uh, I really tried to to make an effort to to change that. Yeah, which again, the anarcho capitalist. I mean, is like is this is this trend inevitable though for the federal government? Like, power corrupts absolute. Power corrupts absolutely. Like, are we at the point? Is there a point of return? Can we claw this back? Via- well, yeah, I mean, clawing it back, it depends on what you mean. Like, I think the CBDC, I think we can stop because that involves explicitly giving the government more power. Well, but 
even more broadly, yeah. higher level view, just trying to top down control, like COVID response, top down control of, of an economy, of, of a, a way in which the, the economy reacted. The government said, here, here's how you have to react. Um, obviously, we have QE before that and other uh, types of activities where you, you try to control these complex systems like an economy or in response to uh, a, a virus outbreak. Uh, and we're finding that there's terrible negative externalities. Like nobody's talking about the, the excess deaths uh, created by fentanyl and suicide. Like number we're one, trying to, we're, we're trying to. Number, number one and two cause of death for people in my, my age group, our age group uh, last year. And it's not talked about. And it's a direct negative externality of, of the, these policy implementations where the government tries to step in and be, be big brother and say, hey, here's what you need to do. And it's just proving to be woefully incompetent. Yeah, just as, as a side note, I mean, for, for people who are really uh, worked up about this topic of how the government has shut down society, shut down schools, shut down the economy, arrogate a lot of power to itself uh, during COVID. I mean, that's that has been probably the, the number one thing that we've spent time on in the last two years is making the scientific case for why that was not necessary, uh, not merely the moral case. Uh, and, and, uh, and I think particularly on the school debate, uh, and and on reopening the economy broadly, we were we were vindicated in terms of we, we you know we were making those arguments in April of 2020, um, and and so that was something we spent a lot of time on. But you know, just to go back to your your original your question, which was you know, can we unwind the power that has been accumulated? Um, not directly, in the sense that, for example, once the Federal Reserve has decided that it wants to control the entire interest rate market. Um, it's not. It's it's very hard to put that genie back in the bottle. It's very hard for 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 the Fed for the Fed to say no, unless Congress passed a law saying you can't do that anymore, which it's not going to do because not enough people in Congress understand why it's dangerous. The Fed's going to keep doing what it's doing, right? Um, the the ability to print money, the ability to run debts, right? We're going to keep doing it because uh, we already have that power to do, it and it's hard to unwind because the political costs of unwinding, let alone the temptation and the incentive. Is is too is too uh, too much of a hurdle. But what have we seen over and over again in history? What we've seen over and over again in history, and even in recent history, even in in the history of your young life, Marty, we've seen technology overcome government power. Right? Think about uh, Facebook and Twitter helping people overthrow the Egyptian government. And mm-hmm. whatever you think of the government that succeeded, it's still pretty remarkable that Facebook and Twitter allowed ordinary people to overthrow their government in Egypt, which is not an easy place to overthrow the government, right? Uh, in the Cold War, uh, you, you had the kind of the earliest uh, in implementations of email and electronic communication that helped uh, people uh, kind of basically end the Cold War um, because they were able to get books in you know, free market or free economic, you know, pro-liberty books into, into Eastern Europe and the Soviet bloc. And vice versa. Uh, there, there are throughout history, technology has helped people overcome the power of governments. And Bitcoin is one of those things that, if we are successful in in, in continuing to build the the Bitcoin network and the Bitcoin ecosystem, and it's already pretty robust, right? But as time goes on, it will be even more robust. It will be even more secure, even more decentralized. Uh, then. Um, it just becomes hard for government to have as much control over the economy as it does today. 
And, and that's what we all have to work towards. Yeah. And so you're doing a lot of work at FreeOp. What advice would you give to anybody listening to this? Any Bitcoiners listening? It's like, all right, how can I help? How can I put Bitcoin in a better light uh, for my representatives, my congressmen? Uh, what should anybody listening to this do? Is there any action that can be taken to, to help the cause? Yeah, I would say that what I'd love for every Bitcoiner to do is think hard about how the least among us can benefit the most from Bitcoin. Because if we are able to make successfully make the progressive case for Bitcoin, the case for why uh, those who are most vulnerable to inflation, those who live paycheck to paycheck, have the most to gain from having an asset that is protected from inflation and having being allowed to own an asset that's protected from inflation, the more we can do to make that case, I think the harder it becomes for, uh, for the politicians to take it away from us. And, and also not just from a messaging or you know, rhetorical standpoint, I think it's really important that we do as much as possible to, to enable uh, uh, and evangelize lower income people to own Bitcoin, people who don't have a lot saved up in the bank. Because only then will Bitcoin have the uh, political strength to, to withstand the challenges that, that are ahead of us. Yeah, don't do it just because it's going to help Bitcoin win. It's actually the right thing to do. Right, it's, it's true. The right thing to do. It's rooted in truth. It's not even the right, yeah. it's rooted in truth. Like it is, it literally does help these people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that, well, that's, a, that's the most important reason to do it. I should, I should be very clear. The most important reason to do it is because it, it, will, it will help them. And I think that, that too often, um, and I respect it. Look, there's, there's obviously a, a great strain of that sort of, you know, uh, uh, objectivist, you know, rational egoism kind of thing in, in, uh, in Austrian economist libertarianism and, and Bitcoin. And I respect it. And, 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 it, and, it, and there's a lot of truth in, in that. But uh, if we want Bitcoin to be as successful as possible, uh, the best thing that we can do, the most valuable thing we can do is to help the least among us benefit from Bitcoin. That's the right way to put it. Teach people how to spin up wallets, protect their private keys, and accept Bitcoin for their work. You could start there. I think that's yeah. an easy one. Yeah, and and obviously a lot of good people like yourself are are uh, are doing a lot. I have I have I have been so impressed by what Jack Dorsey has been doing in this space. Right? I mean, just uh, you know, one of the things that I think is so impressive about Bitcoin, and it really was driven home to me in this in the last Miami conference. Um, Social movements succeed because the, the people who are committed to that social movement are willing to sacrifice their own interests for, for, for their values to succeed. And when you look at the people who are behind Bitcoin versus the people who are behind the, behind the status quo, I'm absolutely convinced that the people behind Bitcoin will win because they're far, far more committed and doing much harder work to build Bitcoin and strengthen it in a way that the Janet Yellen's of the world, Janet Yellen's of the world are not solving the entitlement crisis. They're not <laughs> saying let's not print more money to protect the dollar and the treasury bond. They're just saying uh, we love the status quo and and we think you guys are all nuts, right? Like that's not enough to defeat this committed band of of millions who who are who are building uh, Bitcoin to be that reserve asset that the least among us can hold and use to protect ourselves from from uh, fiat inflation. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's the most important thing. I think all of us should just be thinking as hard as possible about how to help the least among us benefit from Bitcoin and also 
to think harder about a future in which this transition, this disruption happens, where Bitcoin really does become the world's premier reserve asset. Because there are going to be a lot of people left behind when that happens, despite our best efforts, right? Because it's not going to be unanimous. Not everyone is going to is going to is going to do it. So, uh, and not everyone's going to buy Bitcoin or own it. So, we've got to be thinking hard about how to help those along who who are too late to the party, so to speak, to benefit as much as we have. Pensions out there get exposure. That's a great example of you know, and that's something that I had to leave on the cutting room floor of the piece, actually, of the national affairs piece, but. That's something we want to uh, spend a lot of time on from a policy standpoint is uh, pension pension funds are a great example of where Bitcoin pay can be really useful, right? Because, you know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, Bitcoin's a volatile, blah, 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 65K, you know, yesterday, 45K today, whatever. But like from a 40-year time frame, which is how pension funds think about life, uh, the appreciation is pretty much guaranteed, right? Because inflation even at 2% inflation of the U.S. dollar, is guaranteed to wipe out the value of, the, of that savings over time, right? So pension funds are a, a great example of the kind of fund or investment uh, 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 investment fund, I guess you could say, that, that, that benefit the most from a hard asset. And unfortunately, uh, there are a lot of legal uh, constraints or hurdles that prevent pension funds from owning Bitcoin. Basically, um, you know, you, there, there are these kind of rules around fiduciary duties where you basically have to have this kind of like 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds. And if you deviate from that, you're seen as not uh, adhering to your fiduciary duty to the, to the, to the pensioners. Um, uh, and, and that has created this kind of barrier, ironically, to those pensioners' funds being protected over that 40-year that time frame. And so that's a great example of an area where if, if we can do more to enable pension funds, whether private pension funds or state government pension funds, uh, to, 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 to old, you know, have a 3%, 5% allocation of Bitcoin, that could be uh, a very, very important to the financial security, the retirement security of a lot of people. And the social cohesion of the country yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, Ovik, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Um, for joining me. Sorry again for the confusion about the uh, uh, the location of the interview today. Uh, it's great because this this office is two blocks from my office, so it's I'm gonna have a great commute back. And uh, really grateful for everything you do, Marty, to to uh, bring so many interesting people uh, to light that that contribute to this uh, community and and uh, and help uh, people learn about Bitcoin. It's it's such important work. Well, the feeling is mutual. I think what you're doing at FreeOp is very important too, because again. The, the partisan divide in this country is so wide. Like I think what you're doing, trying to go nonpartisan down the middle, classical liberal, is much needed in today's discussions. And uh, I think we're going to win. I think we are. We have smart people like you in very, very good places. Uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future. 2022 is a year of optimism, freaks. We're going to do it. Where can we find out more about you, about FreeOp, uh, about any of the initiatives that you have going on right now? Our website is freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org, one E, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. And if you if you scroll down on the website, there's a the, uh, you can type in your email address if you want to get our email updates. And my my Twitter address is A-V-I-K, or my Twitter handle is A-V-I-K, and Freeop's Twitter handle is F-R-E-O-P-P. And um, uh, I, I tweet a reasonable amount, so that's a good place to get my uh, get my thoughts as well if you're a Twitterer. Great follow. Great follow. Go follow Ovik. That's all we got this week, freaks. Peace and love.